So the question of the day is, what's going to go wrong today? Any um, takers? Uh, I say nothing out, but on the lens. Uh, yeah. Hmm. The screen's going to catch on fire. You mean, like in Plato's, because the fire that's projecting it is like in Plato's cave? Sure. <laughs> Thank you. Wait, why, did, why did screens back in the day combust? Um... The film combusted. Screen oh, film. Yeah. Yeah, if you saw Inglorious Bastards, um, the whole point is that film is highly flammable. And there's a re really good recent novel um, called The Flamethrowers. Um, you've read it? Or you've heard it? It's really good. Um, but one thing that, um, one job that someone has in it is. Um, ah! Burning um, old film. Um, okay, I am determined. I am determined that we are, e even though it's a week late and a dollar short, uh, we're going to go through out of the past just to talk about issues because we have issues because that's what the courses are about, you know, issues. Um, so I just want to say that um, one thing to be thinking about this week and next. And everything that we think about, we should think about um, throughout the course of the course. Uh, but one thing to be thinking about this week and next um, is the question of what um, Benjamin calls the aura, which someone quickly defined. Oh, readers of the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Yes, what's your name? Simon. Simon. Isn't it just like the authenticity of the piece itself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the idea is that the history, for Benjamin, the idea is that um, the history of art is, to some extent, the history of a kind of uniqueness of the art object, that the work of art itself becomes the only thing in the world that is that work of art, that you can go... Um, it's an experience I like and probably an experience that many of you um, like, which is that if you're the only person in the room looking at um, a Vermeer painting, um, that painting, that famous painting, that great painting, then in a sense you're the only person in the world looking at that thing now. And that thing is, you know, <coughs> special, amazing, wonderful. Um, and the aura of the work of art is a kind of secular religious view of its sacredness. It's a kind of aesthetic sacredness that um, Benjamin sees the work of art as um, having over the course of time. The reason we have museums is that they are temples to this um, aesthetic um, sacredness. And, um, you know, um, some of you may know that the Gardner Museum was robbed about um, 18 years ago, and what was taken was Rembrandt's only seascape called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and a Vermeer, and a few other things. Um, a thing you can go see there now, it's actually an exhibit that they did maybe 10 years ago, and that's up again. Does anyone know? Um, it's an exhibit by Sophie Call, who's a great contemporary artist, um, because she's so great and because um, none of you are saying, oh my god, Sophie Call, I'm not worthy. I'm going to have to tell you more about her in the course of the semester, because none of us is worthy of Sophie Call. Um, but what this exhibit is, is she went and talked to the guards at the Gardner, who were in the room that the Vermeer and the Rembrandt were in, um, working there every day. And she also talked to um, people who were visiting who'd been there before 
and she took down their descriptions, their memories, their verbal descriptions of the missing art objects. And then where those paintings are missing, the, the gardener hasn't replaced the empty spots. They're, they're vividly empty. Um, where those things are missing, Sophie Paul has put up for this temporary exhibit, she's put up um, her um, stenography of what people said, how they remembered their descriptions of these missing things. So it's what you're getting there is her work of art, which is the absence or the void of the works of art with their aura that are gone. So Benjamin's claim is that in the age of mechanical reproduction, that is in the age when, let's say, although he doesn't say, but let us say that a graphic novel is a work of art, or that a photograph, he does say, is a work of art, and most of all, that a film is a work of art. Yeah, just let, let it go through the credits so that we can be efficient when I decide it's time to be efficient and stop wandering on. Um, that um, the... Um, in an age of mechanical reproduction and the possibility of mass art, there is no original. There is no genuine item. There isn't the Mona Lisa and then all its forgeries. Um, what there is is only something that exists in multiple copies, only exists um, as a projection on a screen, let's say, as photographs in a newspaper, um, as photographs um, that are printed many, many times, and so on. With photographs, people used to say, I don't know, some of you um, won't have actual hands-on familiarity with this, but people used to talk about the negatives as the real thing. So if you got the negative, if you got the real thing, somehow that had the aura. Um, but the idea, the point is that, that in the age of mechanical, or sometimes it's translated technical reproduction, in the, in the machine age, in what we now call the digital age, where there isn't even film anymore, all there is is information, all there is are pixels, um, that in that age our relation to the work of art is different. Now I want to put this in juxtaposition with something that some of you will have heard me talk about before, which is Hitchcock's, no now stop it, it's a big sign, um, Hitchcock's notion of the MacGuffin. Um, can anyone define a MacGuffin? Yes, Grace, define a way. I think it's like the thing that you're supposed to focus on, but the thing itself doesn't really matter. Yeah. So if you, um, if anyone saw MI3, the rabbit's foot is the MacGuffin in that, if you didn't see it. Well, it's appropriate that it's a rabbit's foot because no one really knows what it is. If you saw Pulp Fiction, it's whatever's in Marcus's um, briefcase. Um, which don't think you know, because even if you think you know, you're probably wrong. Um, what, it's what people are after in any kind of story. And Hitchcock, it's Hitchcock's turn. Um, he defined it like this, and we'll be, because we'll be watching a Hitchcock movie next week, it's, it's good to have this in mind. Um, and MacGuffin, he says, well, let me tell a story, he says in his Hitchcockian way. Let me tell a story. Um, and the story is that there are two men in a train car, and one of them um, um, excuses himself and asks for help from the other to put a huge package up on the shelf. And the second one says, what is that? And the first one says, oh, that's my MacGuffin. And the second one is not too embarrassed to say, um, what's a MacGuffin? The way I would be. I would say, oh, okay, gotcha. Um, but the second one isn't too embarrassed to say, what's a MacGuffin? He says, what's a MacGuffin? 
Unobtainium, by the way, is a MacGuffin almost by definition. What's unobtainium from, anyone? Avatar. Avatar. It's what they're mining on Pandora and Avatar. Do you get it? Unobtainium, hard to get. Unobtainable, except on Avatar, and it's only if you kill, kill these creatures. Um, so, um, so he says, what's a MacGuffin? And um, the, the guy with the package says, a MacGuffin is a device for catching lions in Scotland. And the first one says, um, there are no lions in Scotland? Question mark. Actually, he doesn't say it that way because it's 70 years ago, but that's the modern version. Um, there are no lions in Scotland? And the first one then replies, and that's not a MacGuffin. End of story. When Hitchcock tells it, people laugh. Um, so go ahead, laugh. I could get a laugh track up. Just, haha. <laughs> yeah, good. Okay, enough. Um, it's not that funny. Um, the idea is that a MacGuffin is something that seems valuable, but to an audience, its value is not only its obvious value, oh my god, one million dollars, as Dr. Evil says, um, but it's that we don't know what it is, that something is missing, something is important. The government really needs to stop the bad guys from getting this. Or the, or the good guys really need to stop the government from getting it. What is it? Well, we can't tell you that's highly classified. So we, watching the movie, have two things that we're interested in finding out. One, what happens, and two, what is it? That is, we, have, we want to know what will happen in the story, and we're interested moment by moment in the ups and downs of the plot. But two, we want to know what it is that people are pursuing. That is, we are curious or fascinated by two kinds of revelation. The revelation of what will happen, but also the revelation of what is this thing that people are so concerned about. And usually in decent mystery stories, um, the detective will be the person who makes things happen, but who will, but will also be the person who wants to know why is everyone after this. And here's an easy question, whether you've read or seen the movie, read the book, seen the movie or not, you should be able to answer this like in your sleep. In the Maltese Falcon, what's the MacGuffin? The Maltese Falcon, good, yeah. Um, because um, Sam Spade, Bogart, doesn't know what the dingus is. That's what he calls it, the dingus, which would be the Dashiell Hammett, um, John Houston version of the, of the MacGuffin. So the MacGuffin is what people are after, but in being after it, they are also want to find out why others are after it. They want to know what it is that's so important that our other people are going after it. If it's just money, you know, if it's one million dollars, what you can say is, okay, it's just money. Um, but if it's something that is threatening or sinister or wonderful or delightful or whatever it is that it's supposed to be, but we don't know what it is, part of what we want to know is, what's so great about this thing? Why is it wonderful or sinister or threatening or delightful? So we have a question that we want to have answered what is the MacGuffin? What is that thing that is mysterious but that everyone is after? We have a question 
what is it? And we also have a question, what will happen? Who will get it? Um, but those are two separate questions which nevertheless converge at the end of a good story. Now, there's a sense in which, there's a very broad sense in which um, all stories have MacGuffins. Um, a way of saying this is to say all stories have objectives. Someone wants something. That's the simplest setup for any story. You'll always be told that um, what, what all stories are about. So a standard thing that people say is either a stranger comes to town or a person goes away. That all stories will have one or the other of those things happen. Fine, maybe they will, but the stranger comes to town because he or she wants something or someone leaves home because he or she wants something. Here's a quick one. In The Lord of the Rings, what's the MacGuffin? Good, yeah. And we think we know what the ring means fairly early, but as the Lord of the Ring progresses, we realize we don't. Um, Harry Potter, any MacGuffins? Yeah. It's like, it's all MacGuffin all the time. Um, what are some MacGuffins in Harry Potter? Yeah, those are the obvious ones. Louder, Grace? Horcruxes. All the Horcruxes. Yeah, it's just like wall-to-wall -wall MacGuffins. Uh, what else? Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, let's start with the Sorcerer's Stone, Invisibility Cloak, whatever. Um, so MacGuffins are what people are after often for us and often for them without knowing why this is something important to have, but knowing that it is something important to have. In many, many movies, the MacGuffin is going to be the dame. That is... There will be, especially in film noir, um, there will be a woman who someone or a set of people are interested in finding or interested in understanding or sometimes both. Um, we will see this, for example, in spades in Vertigo, but I think you can see it as well in Rear Window. Is this true, let's say, to take a movie at random of La Jetée? What's MacGuffin in La Jetée? Yeah, the woman in his past, the vision that he had as a child of a woman at the end of the pier, at the end of the jetty, um, and which is what he somehow wanted to return to, wanted to find again. So, with, so the idea of a MacGuffin, you could almost say, is it's a return within film. That is, within a particular film, within any film within any narrative film, at any rate, of something with an aura. And again, if you think of Pulp Fiction, um, it's almost as though the aura is literalized every time the um, attache case is opened. It glows. That's what an aura is. It's a glow that comes off of things. So we don't know what's in it, but we know for sure that it has an aura. Um, and um, I suspect, although I don't know that Quentin Tarantino was actually thinking of the aura, thinking of um, Benjamin's essay, because it is like the essay that you will read in any film course, and if you go to film school, you'll read it in every film course. Um, you know, even if it's a course on makeup, someone will say, oh, but you also have to read Benjamin. Um, so I suspect that Tarantino actually was thinking of Benjamin, but he was certainly thinking of another movie, Kiss Me Deadly, um, which that's a visual quotation of. Has anyone seen Kiss Me Deadly? Um, so you should see it. It's totally great. It's probably streaming on Instant somewhere. 
Um, and what, if you want to know what's in Marcus's case, see Kiss Me Deadly because you will find out. <coughs> um, and Tarantino is sort of expecting you to have seen it. Um, so in Out of the Past, one thing that happens is that this thing with an aura, the MacGuffin, which for Benjamin is somehow the work of art itself, but it's almost as though in film the work of art is what's missing, what's absent, what people are looking for, the traditional work of art. This thing with an aura, the MacGuffin, um, <coughs> will change in the course of the movie, but it will start by being Kathy. Um, and that's actually simplifying it too much, but Kathy is who Jeff is looking for. So what I want us to do today and um, Tuesday, because I, I think it's a very valuable thing to do, is we're going to go through the movie, stopping it scene by scene, like a DVD voiceover um, commentary, and just talk about what's going on. There are a lot of ways in which this is a perfect movie, um, and there are a lot of issues that come up. So we're just going to start going through it again, um, and we'll just start and stop um, as appropriate to discuss things that are happening. Um, the movie is just, it's a work of genius as far as its editing goes, it's a work of genius as far as its lighting goes, it's a work of genius as far as its storytelling goes, it's a work of genius as far as its photography goes. There's nothing that isn't a work of genius about it. Zilch, nada. Um, so we will um, see how that works. Okay, so let's go to the very start. Almost at the very start. You can't go back? Oh. See, it's brilliant the way it goes backwards. Who knew? Okay, I guess we can start here. So I'll probably just have to yell stop if you don't mind. So, one thing, I'm going to sometimes talk over this. Um, one thing that um, tends to happen in noir movies is that there are certain nodes in space that strangers meet. roads, they have to stop for gas, and it's at gas stations that you'll see many, many, quote, accidental, unquote, meetings. So this isn't quite accidental, this is the second time it'll turn out that he's here um, looking for Jeff Bailey. Um, we'll find out a little bit later why. Um, but nevertheless, it's the place where if you're hiding, you're going to be found in American war is usually going to be a gas station sometimes Where's a Billy? diner, and so on. So, the kid is deaf. That's really interesting. Deaf and um, dumb, eh? He doesn't hear the sound of the horn. Um, and then, um, Joe becomes a really interesting figure in how he responds to that. Can you read lips? 
Where is Bailey? Coming back today? Come on. So we kind of are wondering if Joe's a good guy or a bad guy. He's definitely in a dark coat, but he's also definitely in a place that we're not so interested in seeing a detective movie that is in the middle of the country. Um, and then here looks like his opposition. Hello, Marnie. Well, look who's back. You dye your hair. Why? I always keep thinking of you as a blonde. For all the thinking you do about me, I could be bald-headed. I'm on right. Did you miss me, honey? If I didn't, I can't think of anybody else who did. One thing, sure, that Bailey don't miss nothing. Neither do you. She's your girl, and he ain't my man, so it's no skin off my nose. Okay, I just see what I see. You sure you don't? Okay, so, um, we now have Bailey established twice as someone who people are interested in and talking about. Um, the two of them are interested in him. We're not quite sure why, but we know that there's going to be a sexual competition. She's your girl, says um, Marnie. And we also know that Joe is looking for Bailey. Um, what does that make Bailey just in this very opening sketch? He's kind of the MacGuffin. We now want to know why Bailey? Um, who is Bailey? Why are people looking for him? What are they saying about him? Why do they have different opinions about him? Um, Joe turns on the jukebox, and turning on the jukebox gives us what has come to be called diegetic music. That's actually, if you read older film criticism, that's not um, it, the, the meaning is reversed. But does anyone know um, that term diegetic versus non-diegetic? Yeah. Right. Right. So that is now what people tend to call diegetic music. Um, so the basic idea is if what you are hearing in the theater is something that the people in the scene are also hearing, that's diegetic music. If we're hearing music that they're not hearing, that has now come to be called non-diegetic music. So sometimes what we see and hear is pretty much what the people within the scene are seeing and hearing. Sometimes what we see, like in a cutaway for example, um, just think of Family Guy which does it all the time, um, sometimes what we see and, and much more often what we hear is not in the scene, um, not heard by the people in the scene. In horror movies we hear horror movie music. Um, but unfortunately for the people in the haunted house, they don't hear the horror movie music because if they did, they wouldn't climb the stairs and push open that half-closed door with all the cobwebs on it. If they could hear the music, they would say, I think this is a bad idea. They can't hear the music. We know it's a bad idea because we hear the non-diegetic music. However, the music is really well and carefully chosen either to set the mood that is appropriate for the audience's feeling about what's going on, or to set a kind of contrast between what people feel is going on on stage, in the, in the screen, in the story, 
and what we know is really going on. In this case, what Joe does is he puts on some urban music. He puts on um, some 1940s jazz, which seems out of place. It would have been totally out of place as non-diegetic music. That is, if that was just, um, oh, there they are in the diner, and it's a beautiful day, and you can see um, you know, the gorgeous, um, um, brightly lit outside of this small town, and they're listening to nightclub music, or, and we hear nightclub music, we would find it weird. Um, they're, he they're hearing it because Joe, who is the stranger, the first stranger here, represents the city. He comes from the city, and he brings a kind of music into this um, atmosphere that is not appropriate to him <coughs> by putting it on the jukebox. Okay. What you hear? Nothing can happen in this town that I don't hear about it across this counter. I'm just saying what I see. Every day they go fishing together. Look, the sandwich. Two things I can smell inside a hundred feet. Burning hamburger and a romance. Got a customer. Okay, yeah. stop Coffee. Nothing right else? So, again, this question of seeing and hearing comes up. Um, she hears, she says she sees what she can see. He asks, are you sure you don't see what you're hearing? Um, that is to say, gossip. Uh, the question of seeing and hearing is, as we say, thematized already by the kid. The kid cannot hear, um, he can read lips, so he sees what other people hear. That is, um, he sees dialogue when we hear it, when everyone else is hearing the dialogue, he's seeing it. It looks like, and here's the first red herring in the movie, it looks like the fact that he can read lips is going to be an issue in the course of the movie. Um, that is, at some point, he's going it, it's to, a, it's a huge setup for some moment where he's going to be able to, you know, see what some people are saying to each other 100 yards away. It never happens, so a question to ask yourself is, why is he in the movie? Why the kid? Um, and I think there is an answer, maybe more than one answer to it. I think he's really important to the whole experience of the movie, but the question why you have um, a deaf and dumb character in the movie is an interesting one. There are, lots of, there are lots of local reasons to have him, um, but the question is, what's he doing in the movie as a whole, especially when it's underlined by this question, by the dialogue they've just had, about whether she hears what's going on in the town or sees what's going on in the town. Okay, we won't go at this <coughs> snail's pace throughout the whole thing, but I just wanted to show some of the stuff that's being set up right away. Okay. Great. Where have you been this time? How are you? Coffee. Oh, thanks. First she's got you, now she's got you and Bailey. And the only thing I seem to get is older. Thanks a lot, money. I'll see you later. <laughs> Guess I must have said something. You talked enough. Seems like everything people ought to know, they just don't want to hear. I guess that's the big trouble with the world. Either that or you're on the wrong side of the counter. Tell me something. You don't look as though I could. That uh, Bailey who burns you up, he run the gas station? You know him? I might have, once. If he keeps mooning around Jim's girl, nobody will know him. And that'd be too bad. You, uh, see much of this Bailey? Yeah, every day, from here. I often wondered what happened to him. And one day I'm breezing through here, and there's his name up on his side. It's a small world. Yeah. 
on a big sign. So that's the place where coincidences happen and people meet. So this is non-diegetic music. It does not they don't hear it, but they feel it. later, it's clouding up. They say the day you die, your name is written on a cloud. Who says? Hey. Never heard of Nothing in that one but rain. Think we ought to go home? Yes. Do you want to? No. Every time I look at the sky, I think of all the places I've never been. Yes, and every time you look up, they're all the same. You've been a lot of places, haven't you? One too many. Which did you like the best? This one right here. Bet you said that to all the places. You see that cove over there? Well, I'd like to build a house right there. Marry you, live in it, and never go anywhere else. I wish you would. So that's Bailey. But now there's someone else. You would ever. We can guess. Married before, were Is you? Jim's girl. Not that I can remember. That's good. You'd be amazed the way people talk about you. The mysterious Jeff Bailey. My mother tells me that so I've only known you for such a short time, and where did you come from, and what did you do? Okay, so close that for a second. My father... So, he's the stranger, people gossip about him, that's now established twice. <clears throat> he's been gossiped about in Marnie's Diner, now Anne says that people um, have all sorts of stories about him, and as she's getting lost in the moment, he says this is where he wants to be, she's getting lost in the moment, but we get two shots of her just talking earnestly to him and him turning away from her to notice that there's something else going on that she's not aware of because the kid is there. I mean, the reason he turns away is the kid is there and he knows that that's significant. Um, they're private. They are alone together in a, in a town where everyone gossips about them, but now that privacy is over because the kid has shown up um, with something that is going to intrude into his desire simply to be in the present. Go ahead. Let it go. Something the matter? Maybe not. And this is the first of several cigarettes in the movie. Here. You sure are a secret man. Thanks. Oh, man just wants to see me. Okay, so one, again, a thing to notice is, first of all, notice the cigarettes, um, because they're crucial to the movie, and crucial to a lot of cinematic storytelling until um, fairly recently, but really, really crucial to noir. Um, cigarettes are um, just a godsend for business in movies that make it possible for stories to be told. Um, one thing the cigarettes are doing in this movie is they're establishing continuity. Oddly enough, one of the great threads of continuity and of the continuity we've been talking about here is continuity of smoking. 
um, cigarettes make that possible. I also want to point out, just as part of the documentary fact of movie making, that every movie has a documentary aspect. This is something that um, Baju was talking about a little bit in interesting and paradoxical ways. Um, she fails to light his cigarette the first time. That's not scripted. That's, they have the shot, she tries to light his cigarette, she fails, so she lights it again, and Robert Mitchum holds his hand up to make it easier for her to light it. So you could say Jeff Bailey is doing that, or as he's going to turn out to be Jeff Markham, but there's also a sense that in the middle of, you know, it's like something you would see in a play. Um, sometimes people in plays will drop stuff that they're not supposed to drop, so they just pick it up. And you don't say, oh my god, I wonder where in the stage direction it says um, he, he drops um, the quarter that she hands him. It doesn't, but you have to pick it up, so he does. This is happening on screen, so now we know for a fact that a kind of unscripted moment, a failure to light a cigarette, occurred during the shooting of that scene, and they just went through it, and they went through it fine. Um, but it's worth knowing when you read, or, or since you've read um, Bazin, that the idea that you're using reality as the medium for this work of art, a real thing happened there, which is she tried to light his cigarette and failed, and we saw that failure, and then that was simply drawn into um, the exposition of <coughs> the movie. Okay. just wants to see me. Long time. Hello, Joe. Wish it was nicer to see you. Everyone sure missed you, Jeff. But not as much as I have. How's that? Wit used to look at me, shake his head, and wish I had brains like you. What's the other reason? I have to find you. I owe you something. Not me. Who? How far can that kid read lips? I don't know. I'll ask him sometime. This far? You don't like to make any mistakes, do you, Joe? They don't let me have many. All right, come on, sir. So now another person has been introduced, Wit. Funny racket to find you in, Jeff. Oh, yeah, me and the kid laugh all the time. I guess that's because it's respectable. That hasslinger across the street says you are, too. How did you happen to find me, Joe? Well, I was driving down the road one day, and who do I see pumping gasoline with my old chum from the old times? Of course, there's a different name up on the sign. So you just dropped in. Why not? Okay, then I'm glad to see an old pal, too. So I take you to dinner, buy you a couple of drinks, gets late chewing the fat, you hop in your car and you're gone again, is that right? Almost. What else? I'm still working for that guy, Jeff. Wait. He'd like to see you. As much as you did? <laughs> Words. I see. No one ever thought more of you than Wit. Or more about me. Well, that could be, too. So who's the MacGuffin now? All right, what's he want, Joe? Wit. Maybe he's got something nice for you. <sighs> Try once more. Look, Wit never steered you into anything bad, did he? 
Why, he never even squawked when you blew the best thing he ever gave you. Go on. Not the guy just wants to see you. Now you put it that way, what can I do? You know of any other way to put it? Say tomorrow morning? Where? Lake Tahoe. Turn right at Emerald Bay. Big house on a hill. You won't miss it. You can't. So you can't miss it because he's so rich, but also you can't miss it because if you do, you're in trouble. So now we have a fade and a fade in, discontinuity in time. And we may think this is the big house for a minute, although it's not that impressive. And until John, are you letting her out like this? Are you gonna stand for with a man who won't even come to the door? Anne's parents. Don't worry about them. Darling. It's no good, is it? Doesn't matter. It's just that they oh, honey, I know how they feel. Don't worry about it. I'm not. Then don't look so grim. No, it's something else. What? A guy that showed up today. Yes. Want to take a ride with me up to Lake Tahoe? Now? Yes, now. I want to tell you something. All right, Jeff. You told me once I'd have to tell you sometime. Well, this is it. in the car with him. Why? Um, notice that what's gone on very elegantly here is that Joe says you can't miss the house. We then see him driving up to what we think or may have thought um, at least momentarily is the house because that's where he's supposed to be that night. It turns out, no, he's picking up Anne and that her parents are, what else, gossiping about him. And then he says, do you want to come up to Lake Tahoe with me? Why is she in the car? Why does he, why does the movie put her there? Uh, so he can, he has the chance to narrate the past events? Right, so here's a movie called Out of the Past, and now he needs to tell us, through telling her, what the backstory is to whatever is happening at this point. So we know there's backstory. He's, he's, um, Joe noticed him, came back, says Wit wants to see him, says that he blew something really sweet, that it's very important to Wit. Um, we know there's backstory that we don't know. That's now become the MacGuffin because she asks about his mysterious past and he won't tell her. And she says there are all sorts of rumors or there's all sorts of gossip about you, but he won't tell her. But now he's going to be in the car and she's going to be what's called a window character. Um, that's not all she is, although it's a whole lot of what she is, actually. But what a window character is, is a character who is there for someone else to explain things to. So that we know information, we get information that we need without having to have, you know, some kind of screen telling us, you know, in the year 1492, the Jews were expelled from Spain um, just as Columbus was sailing and on his way, although history doesn't know this, 
Columbus stopped at a little island in the Sargasso Sea and all sorts of information. If you were reading a novel, you would get that information from the author's voice. But, um, and movies can do that, but it's much better for us to be eavesdropping rather than to be told. Um, the whole idea of drama is that we're eavesdroppers in the, on the situation that we're seeing. We're, we're self-forgetful eavesdroppers. It's not that we think, oh, this is so cool, I get to eavesdrop, I hope they don't notice me. It's we get absorbed by what we're spying on, what we're eavesdropping on. But the information has to come to us through what's the interactions that are going on between the characters. So one very crucial technical um, kind of character in film is what's called a window character, a character through whom we can see another character. In drama, that character is called the confidant. That is, the person who says, oh, I'm so in love with her, and I just don't know what to do. And the confidant says, well, you know, maybe you should take her to the movies. And the character says, oh, but she's blind. I guess I didn't tell you that. And the confidant says, oh, wow, so where did you meet her? And we get all sorts of information that way. Um, but window characters are much more crucial in movies than in um, plays. And the thing is, any character can sometimes work as the window. When Jeff goes to Wit's house, Wit is going to give him information, at which point Jeff is the window on Wit. That is, we find out backstory from what Wit says to Jeff, who, as you will see, as you'll recall from having seen it, um, one of the things Wit says about Jeff is, um, you're quiet, I like that. And Jeff said, I never learn much by hearing myself talk. So here he's going to talk, and we're going to learn stuff. Then when it's time for him to learn stuff, and we want to learn stuff about wit, Jeff is going to be quiet, and the movie's going to underline how he's quiet. One other thing I want to start pointing out about the cinematography is it's mainly in deep focus. That is, foreground and background tend to be both in focus at the same time. Um, this is a hard to do, although not that hard anymore in 1947, um, but getting what's called a wide depth of field, um, a, or a deep depth of field, um, is something that you that you can do with, with um, camera work and with bright lights. Um, one thing you can notice here is that this is almost certainly day for night shooting. Does anyone know what that is? What is it? Yeah, so this is almost certainly shot during the day um, and with reasonably bright um, sunlight if it's if um, at least the outdoor part of it. The indoor might be in the, the, the foreground might be in the studio. The background is obviously outdoors. Um, but day for night shooting um, is you um, shoot during the day and you can sometimes tell that, that it's happening in, in um, low production value movies, especially low production value color movies. Um, you shoot during the day, um, but by, by using filters and by darkening the image, you tell the audience that this is actually at night. One way you can tell it in color movies, by the way, is sometimes you'll have um, films that are supposed to be uh, at, occurring at night in bright moonlight, 
Um, so sometimes the explanation of why things are clear, even though it's the middle of the night, is that it's a full moon and everything is bright. Um, but moonlight will not give you real colors. Um, moonlight does not pick out um, the full spectrum of colors, far from it. And you can tell day for night if it's, if it's dark, but you can still see a whole large spectrum of colors even though it's dark. That, that's always day for night shooting. Okay. Now the first thing I want to get off my chest, my name isn't Bailey, it's Markham. Markham? Jeff Markham? I should have told you before. I meant to, but I kept putting it off because I didn't like any part of it. Please tell me, Jeff. Some of it's going to hurt you. It doesn't matter. Well, our friend Markham lived in New York. He worked with a sort of stupid, oily gent by the name of Jack Fisher. We called ourselves detectives. That was about three years ago, maybe more. Wintertime, one of the coldest days I remember in the town. And we got a call to come up and see a big op. A what? An operator, gambler. He didn't come to see us because he was too high-powered a character. Also because some dame had taken four shots at him with his own 38. Oh, pause. Made one of them good. Some dame, yet another MacGuffin. So we have the operator who's going to turn out to be wit. And now it turns out, okay, so we know a little bit about him. He's important. He won't go see the detectives. There's also Jack Fisher is established here, his partner, who's going to have an important minor role in the movie. Um, and But now there's another part of the backstory. So there's a lot of backstory here. The narrative exposition in Out of the Past, there's a huge amount of information that we have to put together um, to get the whole story. Generally, that's really hard to do in a movie, to have that much complexity of plot. Um, the plot in this movie is complex enough that um, Roger Ebert um, basically says of the second half of the movie, it doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't matter. Um, Ebert had a habit of... Um, deciding that things didn't make sense because he seemed to think that seeing something once was all he needed to do because he was Roger Ebert. Um, in fact, the plot is very tight and it does make sense. Um, but it's complicated and one of the things that Turner is doing and one of the things that the script writers are doing um, is getting that plot, giving it to you in chunks that are small enough that we can assimilate it without getting really confused. Um, but there's a lot. So now we have Wit we haven't met yet, and then some dame who took four shots at Wit. With, uh, we, we certainly don't know who she is. Yeah? So it seems like they don't really talk exactly like people. I mean, she's telling the story. I think you would say her name, not just the name. Yeah. Um, and that, so um, it's certainly true that no film dialogue um, until you get um, kind of John Cassavetti's slice of death films in the 70s. But film dialogue in general is not like real life dialogue. But one way that, one interesting way this movie is going to cheat, and when movies cheat, that's almost always a good thing. That's part of the slate of hand of a movie, is that we're going to forget in the course of the voiceover, as we dissolve into the past, we're going to forget that he's telling the story to her. And there are lots of things that he says that make no sense if he's telling the story to her. But it slowly morphs in our own attention 
to voiceover rather to pure voiceover um, rather than simply pictures of the past as he's telling her the story about the past in the present. So you're absolutely right about that. That is that um, the movie very artfully changes who we think of as him telling the story to. Um, and we forget that he's telling it to her. Then it brings us back, and we decompress and see that he's telling it to her a couple of times. But it's important, he couldn't really tell the story to her in a way that would be the way we would want to hear the story. So you're right, it has to be, we have to forget her. She's there in order to allow us to make a transition into the voiceover description of the past. Um, and then, once we make that transition, we forget about her, at least for a while. A cigarette means it's going to be a long story. He was taking it in stride, but he had a friend who was a ball of fire. So he likes Newspaper the guys, wise up. guys, who do they think they're kidding? So he shot himself cleaning a cap pistol. So I shot the ace of spades out of a sleeve during a gin game. A guy can't even get shot in his own apartment by a dame without the whole town starting to buzz like a, like a... Thank you. Smoke a cigarette, Joe. You just sit and stay inside yourself. Okay, you stop. wait for me to talk. I love... So... I think that's a brilliant setup, the way that scene works, which is first we see Joe, again, we know him, and he's talking to someone who we assume is wit. That is, we see someone from behind, and Joe is outraged, and we assume that he's talking with outrage to his boss, right? Did people think that the first time? Yeah. All right, good. Yeah? All right, other people said, nah, that guy's sitting there, that can't be wit, it must be someone else. No, there's no way. Um, he says, there, I saw him, there's a hothead. Then we think that it's, so, we, so the scene opens with us thinking it's a scene with two people in it, Joe and the operator, Joe and Wit. Um, then the camera pans and we actually see Wit, and he's so much more interesting than the person we saw from behind. Um, one thing that um, Turner did and that, the, that, his that he had his um, cameramen do is wit is always radiant. Talk about your aura. Until the very end, um, wit is always very brightly lit. Um, and he loves the bright light and he shines with it. The way Kirk Douglas shines in this movie is really something. And the, the difference between his brightness and Jeff's Robert Mitchum's darkness um, is part of a whole series of interplays between bright and dark that you're going to get in this movie. But it's very daring to make the villain, because Wit really is the villain, um, or one of the two villains, it's very daring to make the villain the, bright, the brightly lit charismatic person and the hero, the noir detective, the kind of iffy, sketchy, um, sometimes very dark figure. But so then we see Wit, and we think there are three people in the scene, and Wit is telling him, "Go smoke a cigarette, Joe." Later, he's going to say, um, in my, one of my favorite lines of the movie, "Think of a number, Joe," um, which is just a great put down. Think of a number. Now we can talk while he's trying to think of a number. Um, and then the camera pans more to the right, and we see that Robert Mitchum is hearing all this. Um, so why don't we go back just to the beginning of that scene, just to watch the choreography of the camera work. But again, you couldn't really do this in a play. Okay, good. 
So he lights a cigarette, long story, continuity of cigarette. He was taking it in stride, but he had a friend who was a ball of fire. So Newspaper guys, wise guys, who do they think they're kidding? So he shot himself cleaning a cap pistol. So I shot the ace of spades so out of the people... sleeve during a gin game. A guy can't even get shot in his own apartment by a dame without the whole town starting to buzz like a... Like a oh, but there's wit. Smoke a cigarette, Joe. Another cigarette? You just sit and stay He's inside smoking, yourself. and now You wait for Mitchell. me to talk. I like that. I never found out much listening to myself. <laughs> it amazes me how she missed so often. Maybe you were moving. You know, a dame with a rod is like a guy with a knitting needle. What's he doing here? I called you. My partner. All right, pause. Should I ask why he didn't call the law? So... What is he doing there? Why is Fisher in the scene? Yeah. He's his partner. Sorry? He's his partner. Yeah, but um, he's not going to be part of the movie now for about another hour. So what the movie is doing, again, this is just a, just a matter of exposition, is he's already mentioned Fisher to Anne. He said, um, we were detectives, we were in New York. Um, my partner Fisher and I. Um, now Fisher is in the scene and he hears what's going on, but we're not going to really pay any attention to him um, if he doesn't have much to say. So he, he says that really kind of um, silly line trying to show that he's a tough guy, um, that a dame with a rod is like a guy with a knitting needle, um, and that's supposed to sound clever, but of course doesn't. Um, and the reason for that line, it's not, oh my goodness, what a clever line. I love film noir. I'm going to go to Cafe Press and get a t-shirt with that line. Um, the reason for that line is so that Wit can say, what's he doing here? And that's hanging a sign on it. That is, we need to know that Fisher was there because Fisher is going to come back an hour later and make trouble and we have to have him established as a character, otherwise we're just going to be confused an hour later. Especially since um, that confusion, since um, when he comes back, um, we don't want a whole lot of explanation in the course of what's actually a fairly climactic scene. The sudden, oh, there's Fisher. He recognized us. Why? Because we were in a public space, not a gas station this time, but um, a racetrack. He recognized us, and now we're in trouble. We need to know who Fisher is, what his motivations are, why he thinks he's been cut out of his half of the money, why he's going to blackmail them. Then um, a second ago, I won't, I won't ask you to go back, but a second ago, the shot that we saw, and I will ask you to go back, just go back um, to the previous setup. Yeah, that's good. So now we get two two shots. We get. Um, we get Fisher and Joe, and they make a kind of pair. And we get Wit and Jeff, and they make a pair. Fisher and Joe are the minions, the, um, the um, less talented, less powerful, um, more selfish, less interesting sidekicks of the two main characters. And that relationship is now being set up that um, Joe is to Wit what Fisher is to Jeff. Okay. My partner. There. The two of them. Should the I ask why you didn't call the law? Should you? Well, I guess not. 
Anything happened to her? She ran out on me. With 40,000 bucks. I want her back. All the money? <laughs> you know, I once spent $40,000 on a horse that ran dead last, so I bought the horse... Yeah, that's what I mean. Oh, you're wrong. I put that horse in a nice green pasture so he'd never get his foot caught in a mutual machine. You should go out and visit it sometime. No, I just want her back. When you see her, you'll understand better. Maybe she's just an impulsive girl. Shall we let it go at that? I can let it all go. Even 5,000 now and five when you bring her back? And expenses. Now, that should have been the first thing you said. Find her, Jeff. Bring her back. Why me? Well, I know a lot of smart guys and a few honest ones. And you're both. Cigarette. What happens to her? I won't touch her. stuff on her family, pictures, anything interesting. You'll get it. I'll see you. You bring it over, Joe. Come on, let's go. Oh, by the way, you mind telling me your name? Kathy Moffat. Thanks. She must be quite a dame. A wild goose with 40 Gs. You know, for a smart guy, that Sterling sure trusts you, don't he? Why not? Am I going along? No. Nope. Oh, he doesn't like my personality, huh? Well, I'm still in, Jeff, 50-50. Do I say anything different? All right, all right. It's a good soft touch. Don't get hot at me. And don't get any cute ideas. They weigh? If she's carrying the cash. Well, it's $40,000. doesn't weigh that much. Uh, depending. If you get a $140,000 bill, which I'm willing to sell one of you, I have one. 
um, for ten thousand dollars if anyone wants to buy a forty thousand dollar bill. Yeah. Okay, so the question, um, are they traveling light? How far are they going? Does she have trunks? Um, all of that is the natural question that you would ask. Why is it exactly 131 pounds, and why does she say she weighed herself on the bathroom scale and so on? This is, uh, this is really, um, this isn't a deep question. It's the reverse of a deep question. Yeah. Yeah, um, so he, okay, so um, she checks in, um, he can track where she went, 131 pounds is something um, noticeable. I think it's also, so I'm just making a much, a much um, more minor point, which is that movies have to do what look, this is part of the idea of time, movies have to do what looks, what in real life would take a whole lot of time um, to, to um, occur. That is, if someone is hiring you to find the woman who shot him and who's absconded with four, um, with forty thousand dollars, and if you're trying to find out whether he's going to take his revenge on that woman or not, um, whether he's treating her as an object or as a human being, what the whole thing is about, it really that's not a five minute conversation. That's like all day and all night before you agree. If you're doing an investigation. Um, if you're a gumshoe doing a careful investigation and you're questioning the person who worked for the missing woman, that's also a real, you're going to ask a whole lot of questions about detail. Um, what the 131 pounds and the I weighted because that's how much I weigh, what we're getting there is a gesture towards detail. That is, for us, it's kind of trivial. And that means that now the, the answers that he's getting are no longer that important. Um, she went someplace warm. She didn't have trunks. Yeah, it was Florida. I remember. Um, and now, yeah, and it was 131 pounds worth of stuff. And at that point, we're going to tune out. So 131 pounds, so what? And that's, that's good because that's the, that allows the scene to end without our saying, wait a second, why isn't he asking more questions? Um, if he had asked another question, this is frequently a weakness in detectives asking people questions, um, especially on TV, on detective TV shows. In Law and Order, you'll often get weaknesses like this, is that someone will ask a final question like, um, um, so do you think she went downtown? Oh, no, I know she didn't go downtown. She couldn't stand going downtown because that's where her dog died and she would never go there. Um, That'll frequently be the end of the scene, but it doesn't make sense that the detective will leave after asking that question. Here, the question rapidly gets to some detail that we don't care about. And as soon as we get to that detail, it's like it makes sense that we have enough information and that Jeff would leave. So now, here we are. Go on. And, he, and more voiceover. For Florida, which I do for Mexico. So I just followed that 90 pounds of excess baggage to Mexico City. No the middle of the reform on yes, Mexico. I took the bus south like she did. It was hot in Tosco. You say to yourself, how hot can it get? And then in Acapulco, you find out. I knew she had to wind up here because if you want to go south, here's where you get the boat. All I had to do was wait. Near the plaza was a little cafe called La Marcia. Now watch him go next in. to a movie house. Light. I sat there in the afternoons and drank beer. Dark. I used to sit there half asleep with the beer and the dark. Okay. Only that music from the movie next door kept 
So one motif in this movie, and that was a very minor version of it, is people walking from outside to inside through a dark place. Um, she's going to walk in to the cafe in the same way, and we're going to see her go from bright to dark to bright. She'll walk out the same way. Later, when Wit is in San Francisco, I mean, when um, Jeff is in San Francisco, getting the, um, the tax forms and the affidavit from Wit from Sterling's nightclub, we'll see him walk up and down the stairs, and that's going to be a visual rhyme to the going in and out of the cafe here. So we're... so. We still want to know about her. She's still the MacGuffin, and she's going to be introduced in the next few uh, in the next few feet of film. Okay. Calling me awake, and then I saw her coming so, out of the sun, and I knew dark. I wouldn't care about that forty grand. Do you believe it, please? Si, señorita. Into the light. And look, she lights a cigarette. So intentional or not? Dropping the coin. Senorita, yep. senor, may I speak some words? You will be seated, senor, eh? Yes? With pleasure, senor. I am Jose Rodriguez, a guide. A most excellent guide. Indeed. You asked him. They can tell you that Jose Rodriguez knows Acapulco as no one else. Each little street is... I don't want a guy. Very difficult girl. <laughs> is there one not so, senor? Perhaps a lottery ticket. No. I have here, wrote by skilled hands, a ring. And earrings of jade and pure silver. These. Gracias, senor. Gracias. I never wear them. All right. Please. Thank you. My name is Jeff Markham, and I haven't talked to anybody who hasn't tried to sell me something for 10 days. If I don't talk, I think. It's too late in life for me to start thinking. So pause it a second. I could. So what are we going to find out later about who she thinks he is? Does she know that he's been sent by Wit or not? Just some single guy. Uh, sorry? Isn't she, like, suspected? So there's the question, how to read her face, and um, in view of what's going to happen later, also how to read her face. So later what she's going to say is, um, so when are we going back? That is, it turns out she does know. Um, and we don't find out the moment that she knows, and uh, we're therefore essentially um, entitled to think that she's understood it from the beginning. That is, that he drops the coin, he finds a way to sit with her, um, luckily the guy comes in, so he says, be seated, and he says, with pleasure, um, but dropping the coin is his own gimmick um, to get close to her. Later, um, when... Um, she says, so are you taking me back? And he says, no, we're going to go away. Um, we realize that she's known at, for a longer time than we're aware of. Now, one thing about movie making in the 1940s, this is no longer nearly as true, although it is true in um, TV shows, but not so, not so true in movie making. In the 1940s, 
um, you had what was called continuous showing. That's another version of continuity. Um, that is, if you went to see a movie, the way you would go see it, ask your grandparents about this because they'll remember this. Um, the way you would go see a movie is you would know what was playing. It would be on the marquee, it might be in the newspapers. Um, if it was Citizen Kane, it wasn't in the newspapers, at least not in the Hearst papers. Um, but you would go see a movie, you would know where it was playing, and you would just walk in. You wouldn't go to the 2 o'clock showing or the 7 o'clock showing or whatever. You would just walk in to the movies. And what that meant was there was an 80% chance that you'd be walking in in the middle. And usually it would be a double feature. So the experience of movie going in the 40s, really through the 60s, the experience of movie going is you walk into a movie and you pick up what's going on from wherever you are. You then watch to the end. You then watch another movie whole. That is, if you're going to see a double feature, you'll see, let's say, um, N percent of the movie you walk in on, then the full next movie, um, then either between those two movies or after the next movie, you'll see trailers, which were called trailers at the time because they trailed the movies. That is, now they're previews, but back then people would see a movie and then they wouldn't really want to leave when the movie was over and they would stay to watch the advertisements for the coming attractions. They trailed the movie, so they were called trailers. Um, then you would see a cartoon and a newsreel, and then you would see the beginning of the movie that you walked in on, and then you would watch it until you said to the person you were with, this is where we came in. So if you know that kind of cliche saying, this is where I came in, people say it in fights all the time, like, oh my god, you're going back to that again, this is where I came in, um, that comes from the experience of movie going. Now, the reason that's important is that movie makers are studiously thinking when they make movies. They are thinking hard about making the movie interesting even if you see the second half of the movie before the first half. The idea is that it's okay to see the first half after the second half. It's okay to do that because the first half will be interesting given the setup of the second half. So movie makers are careful to make it possible to the extent that it is possible to do the kind of thing that um, you get in Memento, which is you can see the movie in, you can see it out of order. You can shuffle the order that you're seeing it in. In this case, it's you can shuffle it into two parts, but you can make the cut anywhere, and it should still be interesting. So for some people in this movie who walk in in the second half and know that Kathy, for example, did steal the $40,000, and that she is what's called the femme fatale, the fatal woman, and that she will kill Jeff and will kill um, Wit and um, is not to be trusted in any way, um, then going back to the first half, we're really interested in her deceptiveness and in trying to figure out where she's being deceptive and where she's being real. So if you see this movie the way we see it from start to finish, we won't know she's being deceptive from the start. And that question won't quite arise for us. But if you see it in another order, 
the movie is interesting and these scenes are interesting for somewhat different reasons, um, we integrate the whole thing, we synthesize the whole thing at the end. But now that you've seen it and now that you know that she essentially knows who he is before she says so, we can assume she, know, she knows it already. Um, the earrings are also an important bit of business. Um, they're going to come back later. Um, she says she doesn't wear them. That's also going to turn out to be a lie. So let's go. Go on. On the cliff and look at the sea like a good tourist. But it's no good if there isn't somebody you can turn to and say, nice view, huh? The same with the churches, the relics, the moonlight, or a Cuba Libra. Nothing in the world is any good unless you can share it. Maybe you want to go home. Maybe that's why I'm here. Is it? Well, as always, Jose Rodriguez. It gets too lonely. There's a little cantina down the street called Pablo's. It's nice and quiet. Man there plays American music for a dollar. Sit bourbon and shut your eyes. It's like a little place on 56th Street. I wear my earrings. I sometimes go there. Now watch her walk out into the light. I went to send a wire to Whit that I'd found her. But the telegraph office was closed for the siesta. I was glad it was, and I suddenly knew why. <laughs> I went to Pablo's that night. I knew I'd go every night until she showed up. And I knew she knew it. I sat there and drank bourbon and I shut my eyes, but I didn't think of a joint on 56th Street. I knew where I was and what I was doing. I just thought what a sucker I was. I even knew she wouldn't come the first night. So diegetic music but I here, sat there, but appropriate. Grinding it up. Melancholy love music. Okay, pause for a sec. But the next night. Okay, so what we just saw was what's called, anyone know what, what that um, transition was? Anyone know the technical name for it? Yeah. Yes. What? A whip pain? Whip pain. Okay. Um, it's also, I think, called a lap dissolve. So what happens is the camera is moving and dissolving, and it turns out we're dissolving from him into him, but it's the next night. So what we get is a sense of time is passing. Um, he's still in the same place. It's the next night. Um, in the meantime, the music is playing, kind of dissolving into itself, just as he dissolves into himself. That question of the music playing, diegetic versus non-diegetic music, or the music playing diegetically, but kind of having a little bit of a non-diegetic effect because it becomes continuous the next day. Um, that's going to come up in the sex scene that we don't get to see, but that we get to infer a little bit later. Um, I don't think we're going to get to it now. Um, but the way that's done and the way this, the movie is sensitizing you to the continuities of music over gaps of time. That's what's just happened here, is we have continuous music over a gap of time because it's a day later. That's going to be really important to tell us that there's a sex scene between them. Um, 
tells us this because of the Hayes Code, which is what? Anyone? Censorship. Censorship, and what in particular is censored? Someone's hand was up over there. Yeah. Uh, just sex violence, anything that could be you know, immoral, considered to be corrupting. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. just more moralizing of like the 40s and 50s, just trying to film to a certain level of standards. Yeah, so that Congress won't step in because they would have done a great job. Um, it's a voluntary code, um, and basically the things that can't be in movies are certain, are obvious sex between characters who are not married, or even between married characters. Um, husbands and wives always have separate beds. Um, another thing that can't be in a movie, strangely enough, is a toilet. Um, and anyone know who broke the toilet taboo in Hollywood? What? No, it's before All in the Family. What? First time you saw a toilet in a mainstream movie? Psycho. Psycho, yes. Um, Psycho is the first toilet in a mainstream movie. It gets picked up in the conversation pretty vividly. Um, but Psycho, yeah, that was one um, taboo Hitchcock broke, was the toilet in the bathroom in Psycho. Um, you can't, also you can't have drugs. Rock and roll Elvis brought into the movies, but no sex, no drugs. Um, and in fact, in Kiss Me Deadly, in the novel of Kiss Me Deadly, the thing that everyone wants that's in the suitcase is heroin. But you couldn't put drugs into a suitcase in a 1950s movie. So what's in the suitcase in Kiss Me Deadly is not heroin. And that's partly what makes it so great a movie. It turns it into a MacGuffin. But what it isn't is heroin. OK, so the continuity of music over a gap of time on this um, this dissolve, that's, you're being sensitized to it because it's going to come up later. Let's just go, uh, I think we have like one minute left. You should show. Two minutes. She waited until it was late. And then she walked in out of the moonlight. So light, Smiling. shadow. And now he's going to talk about the So at um, the line, which again I think is a great line and it's going to get picked up later about cigarettes, is she says bourbon 
and he says, as you suggested, just as the waiter puts the bourbon down. So the as you suggested there means you got me right. That is, of course, bourbon. I've already ordered it, and here the waiter is putting it down just as you thought, just as you suggested. Um, that, that, I think that's a neat little moment. It's part of his, um, um, his aplomb and um, part of uh, the neatness of their relation to each other. Um, later, in one of my favorite moments, Wit is going to offer him a cigarette. And do you remember what he says? Wit says, cigarette, Jeff? He says, smoking. He's already got one in his hand. Yeah, already got one. Smoking. Um, same, that scene rhymes with this one. Okay, we will, one way or another, watch the rest of it um, on Tuesday. So, yeah, I think we're going to have to watch more talk less yeah. on Tuesday. But still, we're getting there. What were we up to? Twenty-two.